0: Well, over the last several Sundays, you've heard introductions of the guest speaker, so I feel like I need to give you an introduction. Uh, I've spoken here a few times over the last nine years, but my name is uh, Roger Poupart, and I'm the senior pastor. I have the privilege of pastoring with a great team here. And uh, I also had the privilege, for those of you who don't know me and have been coming to Wayside just over the summer, uh, I want to thank the leadership and you as the church for giving me the privilege of taking uh, a sabbatical—it's the first sabbatical I've taken in over 20 years of being a senior pastor—and uh, everybody kept saying, "Are you going to come back?" I mean, you know, you can get used to uh, this, but uh, I, I honestly have to tell you that uh, there were many Sundays. My wife and kids will tell you that I sat at home and I whined on a Saturday night because the elders gave me strict instructions to stay away, and so as I tried to figure out what other church to go visit around town. Uh, I visited 10 other churches in our city, and I would say to my kids, I want to go to Wayside. I don't want to go to these other churches. I want to go to Wayside. Saw lots of great things happening and other partners in the city, but I can honestly say, maybe I'm a little uh, prejudiced about Wayside, but I can honestly say that if I were moving to San Antonio and I had to choose a church home, it would be this church because of all of the great things that God is doing in and through this church. I I want to thank the team that carried the load while I was away, especially our executive pastor, John Gordon, who uh, led and shepherded the team and all of our team from our custodial crew all the way through the pastors who preached and the guest speakers. So again, thank you uh, for that opportunity to uh, have this time to refresh, to refocus a little, to get some projects done that have been long overdue. But as I sat at home and I visited other churches and I thought a lot about Wayside, I, I, I thought, what are the things that we do well? What are the things we can improve? Even as I looked at other churches, I said I would choose Wayside. It's not that we're perfect. There are certainly things that we can do better. And so what I want to do starting today and in the weeks ahead is we're going to be turning to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, so you can begin turning there. And we're going to be looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Because the seven, in the seven churches, God, through the Apostle John, directed letters to be written. And he looked at these seven churches and he said, these are some things you are doing well. But he also said, these are some areas that you can uh, give attention to. And so I want to use that as our roadmap to look at. Now, some people, when they read the book of Revelation and look at the seven churches, they think that these are uh, symbolic. They say this points to a type of Christianity or a point of history in Christendom. But what you see, if you look at a map, this is the area of Asia, modern-day Turkey. There were seven literal cities that had seven local bodies of believers. So these were real and literal churches. They would be like... Uh, today, God writing a letter to Wayside Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And these letters were being written by the Apostle John, who was in exile on a little island called Patmos off the coast there. He had been sent there by the authorities. And God was directing the writing of his word through the Apostle John. And as John wrote these letters, he sent them by courier uh, to these seven churches. Now, Ephesus, as we'll talk about more in a moment here, was a seaport. So the courier would have probably come ashore there and he delivers the letter. And we'll see in the weeks ahead as we work our way around this geographic circle, that the courier just went on the land route to these various other churches, delivering these letters that God had given. Now, as we look at the, the churches that are mentioned, I don't want this just to be a historical study. Uh, When you look at the church of Ephesus, it was a a real church in an ancient city. But I want us to take what God is saying to this church, the context of it, the historical context as well as uh, the things that he mentions, and apply it to Wayside Chapel because these church letters are relevant to us today. What was happening on the other side of the world, the good things, some of those are happening the areas that needed attention, some of those are things that we at Wayside Chapel can give attention to. And so as we're looking at these letters, as we're looking at what God said to these churches, I want us to look at it in the context of our church. And I want you to remember that the church is made up collectively of individuals. You are the church. So as we talk about Wayside Chapel, I want you to do the same thing with your own individual life, to take each thing we're looking at and say, what would God say to me personally if he were writing a letter to me today? So I invite you to look with me at this letter, uh, beginning in Revelation chapter 2 in verse 1. It begins where God says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, what we see here is the the envelope of the letter. God has addressed this letter. He's sending it to the church, and he says it is to those of you who are in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a major city in that day. It it was one of the most powerful and significant cities. It had a population of 250,000 people. In the city, when you go there today, you can still find the ruins. This is a 25,000-seat amphitheater that was built there. It's bigger than the AT&T Center where the Spurs play here in San Antonio. So you get a, a feeling of the scope and magnitude of this city. Another thing that the city was known for is the Temple of Artemis or Diana. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a pagan uh, shrine to this pagan goddess named Diana, or Artemis. It was a breathtaking structure. I mean, even today, the the architecture and the beauty, it was made of the finest Parthian marble. It was longer than a football field. It was over 60 feet in height. It had 130 columns, uh, 36 of which were covered in gold and jewels. It was a breathtaking sight to see. If you've seen the Acropolis in Greece, uh, this was even prettier than the Acropolis. And so Ephesus was this major city, not only in the sports world, but in the religious world. And it was a politically important city as well. It was called a Roman Aziz city. And that meant that the governor had a residence there. The judicial branch was there. People would come to Ephesus uh, to find Roman rule and justice and other things. So this, this was the city. It was very strategic. And in the middle of this metropolis was this church, the church of Ephesus. And so John is writing to them, and he says, you are in a city and in a place that you need to have an impact. Now, if you were here the last two Sundays, um, the speaker spoke on being counterculture Christians. They talked about how we are living in a world that is no longer church-friendly. When we finish the seven churches, uh, we're going to begin a study in the book of Acts. So uh, we're going to be talking about the first century church and what it looks like for us in our day and age. But we live in a, in a society that is no longer Christian. Um, the culture is no longer friendly to us. It's no longer driven by values that we would hold. And so this was Ephesus. When you look at this city, uh, the letter is being written about 90 AD. The church was founded in 52 AD, probably by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, The Apostle Paul left them there, and as they were sharing the gospel, the, the church was founded. And later, Paul was there in Ephesus. He spent two years in that city as their pastor. It had other prominent pastors as well. This was a church that had a wonderful lineage of teachers. Timothy was their pastor at a point. The apostle John, who's writing this letter, had been their pastor at another point. And so as Revelation 2.1 tells us, the letter is addressed to those in Ephesus. It says that it is specifically going to care of the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, the Greek word that is used is, uh, there was also a library there. I failed to mention this. This was, this was the third largest library. So, again, it was a place of learning and culture. But in Ephesus, uh, it says it's being written to the angel. The Greek word angelos means messenger. Now, it's used both of angelic messengers, like we think of an angel, but it also is used of a human messenger. We find it used that way in Matthew 11:10, Mark 1, 2, Luke's gospel, Uh, Gospel uses the word angelos to speak of human uh, messengers several times. And so as John is writing to this church and in the six other letters we're going to look at, each one says to the angel in this church. That is the teaching pastor. It's not that we're angelic, but that was the teaching pastor, the elder who would receive the letter and then would read it to the congregation. In that day, they didn't have the privilege that we do where each of us can own our own Bible or we can have it on our phone or our our tablet or something. So when this letter arrived, the church would gather and the scripture would be read by the the teaching pastor. Now, John is the one I told you who's physically writing the letter, but God is directing it through John. And so we see that it it is God himself speaking. As Revelation 2, 1 tells us, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, I want you to notice something here. Each of these letters are going to begin by sharing something of the attributes of Jesus Christ. It will speak of his character. It will speak of who he is. One of the things I hear so many times is people will talk about the book of Revelations with an S. You ever hear that? Revelations. It is the book of Revelation. As you look at Revelation 1.1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the, as, as people today, we get excited, well, not everybody, but most of us get excited about the things that are revealed in it, the end times, the, the things that are to come. And we mistakenly think the focus of the book is on revealing what is coming. But what the focus of the book is, is revealing the one who is coming back, Jesus Christ. And the things that will happen in and through him as he returns and he reigns as the rightful king. As he is the judge who will ultimately judge all who have ever lived on the earth from the beginning of time to the present. And so it is the book of Revelation that is speaking of who Jesus Christ is. And in each of these letters, there will be characteristics or attributes that we see the letter pointing to Christ. If you read chapter 1 that we've passed over, there are things revealed about him already in, in, this, in this letter that John was writing. Now it says, uh, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now the right hand is a symbol of authority in the scripture, and the way the word is used here, it literally means to authoritatively uh, have this. It, it, it holds. It, it means to hold authoritatively. What it's telling us is Jesus is the ultimate authority over the church and those who lead it. You'll notice he is walking among the churches. He knows what is happening here at Wayside Chapel. He knows what is happening all around the world in his church. He is the head of the church. And as... Um, he is talking about these things. You start already going, well, Roger, we're, we're, you're talking about metaphors and symbolism and right hand and stars and lampstands. Many of you are going to be doing the Revelation study with Bible study fellowship that's beginning this fall. And if you're going to be one of those who are doing the study, uh, you can take a deep breath and relax because what you will find is God reveals most of what he's telling you. He wants us to understand. When he uses a symbol, he often interprets it. Just read it in the context, read ahead, look at what it's saying. For instance, if you look at Revelation one twenty, it says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, here he defines it. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We've already talked about who they were, the teaching elders, the pastors. And it says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You don't have to scratch your head and say, what does all this mean? He tells you. Now, picturing the church as a lamp is a, is a great metaphor because just as a lamp gives off light so that we don't, you know, trip over something in the dark, it's the same thing with God and his word. What he's telling us is one of the reasons we have his word. Uh, the, the Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And it also speaks to us as those who are to be lamps, those who are to be lights in the world. In Matthew five fifteen through 16, it says, Men do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, not only as a church... We are to be a lighthouse in this city and around the world. But each of us as believers individually are to be lights. When you look at Wayside Chapel, I I told you that we are a collection of individuals. But what we can think of, now most of you know I'm not a very good singer, so um, I'm not going to really sing the song This Little Light of Mine. You can hum it in your head. But, but you know that what we do is, um, as Christians, sometimes that's what we do, right? Whoops, yeah, my light almost went out there. You know, we go, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine. And that's what we do, isn't it? For some of us, this is it. It's my little light, and we're going to shine it. But what we're doing is what God tells us not to do. We kind of hide it. We cover it up. We go into our workplaces, we go into our schools, we go into our neighborhoods, and we're kind of like secret service Christians, right? We're deep, deep undercover, and, and nobody knows that we're believers. You know, if we were to blacken this room completely, this one little point of light, after your eyes adjusted to the darkness, it would be amazing the impact that one tiny point of light would have in this room. And that's the same for us. As we go into the world, what God says is he doesn't want us to hide our light. He he doesn't want us to be secret service Christians. He he wants us to let our light shine. School is starting Monday. And all throughout the pews, I see teachers, administrators, uh, homeschool parents, people who are involved in educating, training, teaching children. And we pray for you. You are going into a mission field. You are going into places. Some of you serve in Christian schools where you can freely share your faith. My wife was a public school teacher. Uh, she was in a position where she was not allowed to share as much. But those of you who are teachers know, you still have a right. My wife kept a Bible on her desk. And kids would sometimes ask her, Mrs. Pupar, what, what what is that Bible? What, is, what does it say? And if a student asks you, you're allowed to, to respond. And so you have an ability, even in a public school setting, to share your faith, to be a point of light. Uh, Many of you serve in the military, and you are on bases that are becoming more and more uh, uh, anti-Christian. And you are facing things that, in careers, uh, there was a a woman recently who was court-martialed, as you heard reference, because she put a Bible verse on her her workspace. And I know those things are happening. I talk to the base chaplains. They speak to me about the struggles they're facing, things that are happening. But you are called to be a light in the darkness. And as you think of that point of light, the impact that you have, the darker the place, the greater the impact that your light is. Many of you as men and women are in the marketplace. You're in business. Uh, you are in places where God is not the first thought on the mind of many people. And again, we are called to be lights to go into those places. You know, when it comes to being a point of light, um, I, was, I was going over the numbers this week with our children's department. They're having training today. We're ramping up for Promotion Sunday next week. And they said, Roger, we have 617 kids in our database now, they're not all here the same Sunday, just like we don't have all of you here the same Sunday. We have over 3,000 people who call Wayside home. They're not all here the same Sunday because we couldn't get you all in. But they're saying we, we are growing. We had over 500 kids in vacation Bible school. And we are maxing out our rooms. We're maxing out our capacity. We have so many faithful servants who are serving. But as God continues to bless us and add to our number, what it means is we need more and more disciplers, more and more teachers to step into the environment here to love on these kids, share the good news to help disciple the kids, to let your light shine uh, here in the context at Wayside Chapel. Now... The way we're reaching Kids for Christ is, is not just here in the doors of Wayside. Um, it's happening out in our community. And you know, what I love is our kids are catching the vision and are being a part of it. Uh, some of you, I know, are involved in the work at Eisenhower Middle School right up the road, one of our neighborhood public schools. And our student minister, Ronald Long, took the middle school kids over there for three days. We've been doing this for years. We call it Serve Our Schools And the kids spent three days going into that public school, moving books, setting up furniture, helping teachers, doing all these grunt type of tasks that were just blessing the teachers, allowing them to focus on other things. And it opens up a door, an uh, an opportunity. People say, what church are you from? Why are you doing this? We have another long-term partnership at Colonial Hills Elementary School, another public school here in the city. We've been doing that now for, I believe, seven years And uh, yesterday, 20 of our men were on their campus building planter boxes so that they could have an outdoor lab, uh, not only beautifying the property, but having places where the outdoor curriculum, they're going to plant plants and do things. And at the same time, others of you have been collecting school supplies. It's an under-resourced school in our community. And you've been collecting school supplies, and those were being distributed to those families. And we have a partnership where over 100 of you uh, are involved in mentoring, going into the school, teaching these kids basics like math and other things, which then have a ripple effect as it changes their behavior in the classroom. The confidence of the kids goes up. We serve the teachers. We do encouragement luncheons for them. We do all kinds of things. And some of you may be saying, well, Roger, I'm hearing you mention a lot of like social justice stuff. That's great. Don't get me wrong, but what about the gospel?" Well, part of what we do these things for is to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be tangible representatives in our community, these points of light. But it also opens the door to the gospel. It opens hearts. Uh, Over the last six years, we have seen over 100 of those kids come to faith in Jesus Christ through the after-school Bible club that we have at Colonial Hills. Uh, This summer, we helped scholarship 49 of those kids to send them to His Hill, a Christian summer camp here in our community, and others were on the Pine Cove base camp here on our property. And one of those kids comes from a Muslim background. He's been in the after-school Bible club for several years, and he came to faith this summer at Pine Cove base camp, where it all came together. And it wasn't just a, let me say this to get something, it clicked. And here is a, a young man who was in an environment where he did not know the true Savior, Jesus Christ, and he's come to faith through these things that are being done. So these are steps that open the door. We do it at the highest level. We have a, uh, the, the medical school here. We twice a year do a luncheon with those Christian, we, the, the Christian medical society that is there, we sponsor a lunch, we bring in a speaker, and we partner with many of you who are professors and teachers in that medical community. So these are ways that we are reaching out, that we are opening doors, where we're letting our light shine. You see, when I light that candle, you can look at that candle and ask yourself, where is my light shining? Am I one of those secret service Christians where nobody knows uh, that I serve? Some of you say, well, I, I, I kind of let the light shine a little here. I serve in a rotation. I do things. But what about when you walk out of the doors of Wayside? When you go to the base where you serve? When you walk into your workplace? When you go into the school? Are you taking your light into that community? I want you to remember that the, the Ephesians here, the, the church in Ephesus, they were out in a community that was not church-friendly. Jesus says to them in verses two through three, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. As Jesus says this, he uses the Greek word kopos. It means to labor, trouble and toil, literally laboring to the point of exhaustion. Now, one of the things I told you the Sunday I left for my sabbatical is that God has impressed upon me that I need to better learn how to rest. So I'm not coming back uh, having had a little time off saying, okay, the rest of you drive yourselves into the dirt, Uh, you know, persevere and toil even when you're exhausted. That's not what God is talking about here. When he talks about those who are pers- who are persevering even when they're weary, when he says you've endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, it's like 2 Thessalonians 3.13 that says, but as for you, brethren, do not weary of doing good. You see, we live in a culture now that is against the truth of the scripture. It is tolerant of everything but Christians. And there comes a point where We get tired sometimes. And we go, what's the use? And and we want to just go with the flow. You know, as a fish, you think of a, a fish swimming upstream like in a salmon run. When a fish is dead, it just kind of goes with the flow, doesn't it? And some of us just want to go with the flow. We're tired of swimming upstream, we're tired of fighting the culture. But we're called to be counterculture Christians. Let me tell you what the culture was like, what these believers were facing. Turn over to Acts chapter 19. Because in Acts chapter 19, we get a a snapshot of something that happened there in the city of Ephesus. In Acts 19, 24 and following, uh, it tells us this. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Remember, you have this pagan temple uh, if you go to some of these places like the Eiffel Tower, you know, everybody's selling you these little trinket. Fa- look, Take home the Eiffel Tower, and it's a little piece of junk metal. Well, they were selling these little shrines, and they were made out of precious metal, and so there's this business around the temple. And it says that it was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. This is their livelihood. They're getting rich off it. These he gathered together. He gets the union guys together with the workmen of similar trades, and he said, men... You know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, here in our city, but also among all Asia. Remember, people who travel from all around the world to see this place. He says, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Amen is right. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Now, how do the people respond? It says, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater. Now, as you keep reading, you see that what they did was they grabbed some of the traveling companions of Paul. And they said, some of you are the guys sharing the gospel. And they dragged them into this amphitheater. And, and there, Paul hears about this. And Paul says, I've got to go in there. And the Christians restrain Paul, and they say, if you go in there, they will kill you. They will lynch you. So you've got a couple of guys that have been thrown center court there. And Acts 19.33 says that one of them is Alexander. And it says, he tried to make a defense to the assembly. And suddenly a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I want you to remember uh, what we're talking about here. Do you remember that temple in the amphitheater? Picture yourself standing center court at the AT&T Center and the arena is filled to the brim with people. And you say, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. And suddenly the entire temple starts, the entire Spurs Center isn't shouting, go Spurs, go. They're, they're shouting you down. Not for five minutes, not for an hour, but for two solid hours. Every time you try to speak, they start chanting louder. That's the environment these Christians were in. They were in a very anti-church, anti-Christian environment. I want you to remember that when you go to school as a student and you walk down the halls and you think, you know, it's not cool to be a Christian here, so I'm going to hide my light. I'm not going to share with my classmates or my co-workers uh, that I'm a believer because there's going to be kind of a personal cost. Think of it when you go back to your base or your workplace or into your neighborhood where maybe, again, it's not cool to be a Christian. And you're thinking, how in the world can I swim upstream? How can I be counterculture? And is, is what I'm doing really doing any good? Friends, remember, they changed a city. They changed a worldwide worship of a pagan religion. They were letting their light shine in this environment and by doing so, they changed everything. And that's what we can do as we go into these places. If, if we're willing to be those who will let our light shine and be counterculture Christians, to stand for the truth. In Revelation 2.6, Jesus commends these Christians for standing for the truth when others were not. He says, yet this you do have. We're skipping over a moment. We'll come back to what he says. Here's what needs attention. But he says, you've got this going for you that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans were named after a guy by the name of Nicholas. And if you look at Acts 6.5, there was a deacon in the early church named Nicholas. And most scholars believe that the Nicolaitans were a sect that followed this guy, a deacon in the church who had turned from the truth, who said, you know, I'm tired of swimming upstream. I'm going to go with the flow. I'm going to line my pockets with the the lobbyists who are feeding me money from the silver trade, from these other things. I'm going to say it's not wrong to go worship at the pagan temple. I'm going to say you can eat the food sacrificed to idols. I'm going to say there's liberty in Christ. If you want to do the immoral things that are happening in the temple, go ahead. This was a leader in the church who sold out to the culture and said it's easier to go with the flow. It's easier to to join society rather than to stand against it. He let his lust replace his love for the Lord as he lost his way. There was a void that the world backfilled in. And when our love for God grows cold, that's what happens in our own life as well. God warns these Christians and he warns us today in verse 4. He says, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. You know, as we're talking about this city, about how they stood for the truth, how they were in a, a, a hard environment in doing this, we say, wow, wonderful. And God says, watch out. He says, because externally things look good, and there are good things happening. You guys are orthodox, you stand for the truth, you don't cave into certain things. But he says, externally things are looking good, but there's a problem internally. There's a hard issue that if you don't correct it, it can become fatal. He says, I will remove your lampstand. What that means is he'll snuff it out. He'll say this church no longer exists in this city because it's no longer being my light. And God is doing that in our day as well. Denominations that are turning from him, people that are becoming uh, ultra liberal and rejecting the truth of God's word and on and on. Those denominations are dying. We hear all the time that Christianity is dying, that uh, we're in a non-believing. But you know what is the fastest growing uh, groups are in our society? It is the evangelical believers who say, we believe the word of God is the word of God. We believe it says what it says and we are to live as the way it says. Those churches are growing and exploding. The churches that are dying are the ones that are turning from God. And God is putting out those lampstands. And he says to the Ephesian church, you guys have got some good things happening, but be careful, he says in verse 5, or I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, I titled this message, God's Cure for the Common Cold, because a common disease that many of us face is that our faith can grow cold. If we are not cultivating it, if we are not giving attention to it, uh, naturally what happens is it diminishes. Our fervor for God uh, can go away. Some of us find ourselves in a place where we're struggling to share God's love with others and the root cause of it isn't that we don't know how to evangelize or even that we lack the courage. What's driving it is our own passion for God is diminished. And so we don't feel an urgency to share our faith. It's like a pot of boiling water that boils over. When it's really hot, it, 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 it just gushes out. But when you turn the temperature, it just kind of diminishes. And for some of us, that's what's happening. Our own love for God has grown cold. And so we don't have that motivation. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning saying, but wait a minute, Roger. I'm putting more money in the offering plate than I ever did. I'm serving more than I ever did. I'm doing more for God than I ever did. Great. Awesome. If. That's great if. You're doing it because you're driven by your love for God and the relationship. If you have the misguided assumption that if you do more and are better, you'll get into heaven because you'll be good enough, or, you know, things have become just mechanical where you're just doing it and you're going through the motions, God says, that is not what I want from you. Christianity is not about rules. It's not about ritual. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not as a result of works. It says it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. What God says is, I don't want rules. I don't want ritual. What I want is a relationship with you. Now, the good news is you may find yourself in a place where you're saying, well, Roger, Honestly, my my love for God has diminished. My light is flickering. I kind of feel bone dry spiritually. The way that lamps were designed in this day, some of you have these floating candles that works off the same process. They would make a container. Some of them were fancier than others, but they would just take a seashell or anything, and they would put a wick in it, something made out of flax or rope or something, and then they would fill it with oil and they would light it. And what it would do, the wick would wick up the oil, and that's what produced the light. Now, when the oil burned up and there was no more oil, they didn't throw the lamp away. What they did was they refilled it. And some of you here today are saying, you know, I'm dry. I've been giving, giving, giving out of my time, energies, treasures, etc., but I haven't been replenishing it. And that's why you feel dry, and that's why your light is diminishing. And what God says is, I want you to refill The basin. I want you to refill the basin called your life. Begin to pour back into your life the things that will replenish you. If you're going dry spiritually, look at verse 5 because here God gives us the cure for this common cold. He says, He says there, Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. See, what he does is he says there are three things to do. Remember, repent, and repeat. Now, let me just quickly walk through these. We'll cover them more in some of the messages ahead. But when it says, remember from where you've fallen, you can think of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the prodigal son is a, is a story of, of the relationship of the Jews at the time, some who were religious and were obedient-looking sons, and there were others that were disobedient. Remember, there were two boys. One did what the father said. The other one said, hey, I'm going to want my stuff, my inheritance. I'm going to go. I'm going to walk away from my father and home representing God. And so he took his inheritance, and he went off and he lived a life of sin. He got into the world and its pleasures. He was doing everything the world offered. And he was having a great time. The Bible is very clear that for a period of time, sin is pleasurable. But then the bills come due. Not just financially, but all the consequences, all the things. And so ultimately what happened is this good Jewish boy who had walked away from God and was living anything but the life he was called to, finds himself at rock bottom. He was slopping hogs. Remember, pigs were unclean animals. He was in rags. He had nothing. And he was, it says, longing to eat the slop that he was feeding the pigs. It was literally the carob pods. It was the leaves off a tree. He said, boy, that looks like a plate of steaming fajitas. I want to eat that. That's how low he had gone. And so he comes to his senses. It says he remembered. He said, you know, in my father's house, even the servants eat better than this. And so he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to repent. I'm going to return to my father's house. And I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave. So he rehearses this. He goes back. And and so he's on his way to do this. And what repentance means, the word repent literally means to stop, turn around, and go in the other direction. It starts with your mind. It says repentance means that you have a change of mind. But it leads to a change of action. You see, some people think repentance is you sin and you say, My bad, sorry, God. That's not repentance. That may be regret. But what repentance is, is where you have a change of mind where you realize, I'm going in the wrong direction. And then it leads to a change of direction. So when we sin, if you picture yourself standing at the cross of Christ and you're in fellowship with with God and his son, when we sin, what we do is we turn our back on God and we walk away from him and we walk toward our sin. And repentance is when we realize we're on the broad road that leads to destruction. And God says, I want you to stop. I want you to turn around and I want you to come back to me. And so that's repentance. And that's what this young man does in the story. He remembered what he had, that relationship, that care, that protection, that all the things that came with being close to his father with God. And so he returns and he repents. He, he gives his, his spiel. And do you remember how the father responds? After he repents, after he confesses his sin, the father says, Stop. You're not a slave. You're my son. And he picked him up and he put a robe on him and a ring and feet, and he killed the fatted calf. And my son has come home. And that's what God wants from us today. He says, some of you have grown bone dry. You've turned from me. You've walked away. You've stopped doing the things you did before. And he says here, I want you to do those things again. He says, I, I, I want you to, to come back to me. Turn around and come back. And as we do, what we realize is, you know, the stuff in the world that we think is great, God says, let me tell you what I've got waiting for you. As you look at what it says here in verse 7, uh, he mentions the tree of life and paradise. That's heaven. That's eternal life. And he says, some of you are eating out of the, the, the pigsty. You're, you're eating the slop of the world when... <laughs> I've got the tree of life for you to eat from. I've got a home in heaven waiting for you. If you will just come back. Some of you will remember the old commercial where there was a man who was sitting at a table and he's reading his paper and uh, he's, he's, he's absentmindedly eating and suddenly he, he stops and he goes, this is good. And he puts his paper down and he, he picks up the cereal box in front of him and, and it's a box of Kellogg's cornflakes. Remember this commercial? And he picks it up and he goes, whoa, these are good. I forgot how good these were. And the voiceover at the end says, taste them again for the first time. And what the Bible tells us is some of us need to taste God again for the first time. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what happens when we remember the word remember literally means to keep on remembering. It's not a one time incident. Some of us need to do this. We need to just stop and we need to taste God again for the first time. We need to go back and say, I remember how good God has been to me. I remember those times of faithfulness. Go to Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as you walk through it, it talks about how he leads us to places of green pasture and beside still waters. And some of us just need to linger there for a moment and remember all the ways God has blessed us. Now, some of us also need to linger as we go through the valley of the shadow of death. Some here this morning are having anything but a peaceful time at this moment in your life. There's turmoil in your family. There's health issues facing you. There's financial crisis, job loss, on and on. And what that says is God is our guide, not just in the places of plenty, but also he's with us when the road is steep and treacherous, when we're going through a dark valley that we're not sure how it turns out. It says he takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. If the worst thing we face is the loss of life and our life on this earth is over, is that really bad for a believer? That's where we get verse 7, the tree of life in paradise. It's hard for those here on earth that are left behind, but for the believer, it's a promotion. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, it's a win-win. And so it's in those times of of steep and treacherous roads sometimes that the greatest growth and grace comes in our life. Jesus tells these Christians, do the deeds you did at first. This is where repeating comes in. This is where we reignite that love that has gone cold. You know, some, sometimes I meet with couples who come in and they say, Roger, we don't love each other anymore. Marriage is over. We think it's time to divorce. What do you think? God wants me to be happy, right? That's in his word, right? Yeah, it's in second hesitations. <laughs> that book's not in the Bible, by the way. But what they say is, you know, we don't, we don't love each other. We don't feel, well, they tell me we don't love each other anymore. And I say, well, let's, let's talk through this. And what I help them figure out is it's not that they don't love each other anymore. What they've lost are the warm fuzzies, the butterflies. And they're saying, you know, we don't, it's hard. It's not fun anymore. It takes work. And and what they're really saying is we don't want to do the work. We don't want to do this. Because I take them to passages like 1 Corinthians 13. I said, Let, l- let's look at how God defines what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account wrong separate. You go through the list. And I say to them, D- do you notice something about this? None of these are adjectives. This isn't a feeling. This isn't an emotion. They're all verbs. Do you know what it requires? It requires work. It requires action. Right now, you don't like each other. It says love is patience. So I say, let's figure out a way for you to demonstrate patience with one another or kindness with one another. Or let's quit keeping a record of all the wrongs. Love does not take account of a wrong suffered. It's kind of like lifting weights. You don't start by deadlifting 500 pounds. You, You start with a small little amount of weight and you work up, your reps. You work up the weight. And as you do that, you build endurance, you build strength. And I say, right now, you two barely can look at each other. There is no love. I get that. But what I want you to do is initiate loving actions toward each other. And as they start doing some of these things, you know what happens? It starts to ignite love. They start to feel love. Well, now we're no longer attacking each other. We're being kind to each other and and they start to say, you know, you're, you're kind of a nice person. I kind of like being around you. You're, you're willing to forgive me as Christ forgave you of your sins. And as these things happen, as they're repeat, repeating the things they did before, you, think back to when you were dating that person. None of us were adversaries when we were dating or we wouldn't have gotten married. We'd, we'd Drive miles to see the person. We'd stay up late or get up early. We'd do all kinds of things to spend time with the person. And for some of us that's part of the problem. We're not spending time with God. We're not in his word reading it, hearing what he's saying to us. We're not praying, talking to him, having this relationship that he wants. Think about the the priority of God in your life. How much of your day does he get? Or do you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, I need my my phone so I can look at Facebook or I can look at my emails or, you know, whatever you're looking at. Or is your first thought, you know, let me just talk to God. When you wake up in the morning, do you say, Lord, thank you for another day of life. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Or do do you go, good morning, Lord. Or do you go, good Lord, it's morning, you know? And so what God says is we need to remember, we need to repent, we need to repeat. Now, as we think through these things, the question is, will we do them? The the Ephesians did. The church lasted in Ephesus for another 400 years. But look at Revelation 2.7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here is the promise of home in heaven for us as Christians. And for some of us today as believers, we need to remember. We need to repent. We've been walking away from God, and we need to stop. We need to turn around. And we need to repeat. Again, remember, it's not about rules and ritual. It's a relationship. So you ask yourself, what can I do to reignite my love for God, to restore that relationship, doing the things you did at first? But it may be that there's somebody here today that's never had that relationship to start with. You've been trying to do everything by rules or ritual, or you've been trying to get to God by being good enough. And what the Bible says is you can't do that because Romans 3:23 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God heaven and God require perfection and we say well i'm not perfect i've sinned the word sin literally means to miss the mark it means we made a mistake we did something wrong we disobeyed whether we talked back to a parent or we took a cookie that we shouldn't have out of the pantry or we lied or cheated or th- that's all sin Every one of us has done that. Romans 3.10 says, there's an unrighteous, no, not one. So we're all sinners. We all have a problem. We're separated from God. But God has given us the opportunity to come home through repentance. Where we recognize we have sinned. And he says, if we stop and we turn around and we turn to him. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin. What we earn is death, separation from God. But... The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans ten nine he says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Now you may be sitting here today saying, Roger, you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know how bad I've blown it. God wants nothing to do with me. Oh, yes, he does. He proved that when he left heaven and he came to earth and he went to the cross and he died for us. In Romans 5, 8, it says, he demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. God says, I don't love you this much or this much. I love you this much. And I opened my arms wide and I died for you. You heard David Dyer talk about the blood of Christ during our time of worship. And it is that blood that has washed away our sins. And what he says to us today is, my arms are still open wide. All you have to do is turn to me, and I will make you a part of my family. If you'd like to do that, will you join me as I close our time in prayer? By praying this prayer, it's your way of saying to God, God, I am a sinner. I know I've been running from you. I know I've I've turned my back on you in the past. But today, God, I want to turn around. I want to come home. I want to be a part of the family. I want you, Jesus, to be my Savior. If you'd like to do that, then just pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I'm somebody who's made mistakes in my life. And I recognize today, God, that I need to come home. I want to come home. I thank you, God, that you've provided the way home. That you, Jesus, came and died in my place to take my penalty upon yourself, to be the one who who died. The wages of sin is death, and you, Jesus, died for me. You paid my penalty. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin into you to be my Savior. Thank you for making me a part of the family. Thank you for welcoming me home. And for the rest of us, there are some of us here today that need to say to God, We've we've been running from you. God, we've we've moved too far away from you because we've gotten sucked into the culture of the world or we've we've just grown weary and tired of fighting so we've been going with the flow and today god we want to repent we want to turn around we want to begin swimming upstream again we want to be those who will lead others to you so help me god as i go home today as i go to my job as i go to school as i go to these places you have me may you uh, let my light shine would you help me lord to be a light in the darkness as you call me to I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, there are prayer leaders at the front. I'll be here. I would love to talk to you to make sure you know the step you just took and to begin to help you to grow in your faith. For the rest of us, let's go into the world, out of the doors, into our mission field, and shine our light for Christ. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.